This is the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis's time as a teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. The following message is one of Robert's original messages to men on manhood, found here under the series heading, Authentic Manhood. We hope you grow in your faith and love Jesus more as you learn through these teachings. You know, in our last two sessions together, our focus on work has been primarily big picture. And the reason for that is because, as you know, the whole world of work is a, a vast and intimidating subject, isn't it? And in order to uh, help us, what I've been trying to do the last couple of weeks is put boundaries around that vast subject. For starters, we talked about the major motivations that we have towards work. You remember those? Uh, then last week, we talked about the two primary perspectives that we carry with us to work or we can carry with us to work. Uh, I can see my work as I have to. That's one view. A necessary duty. I called it a concession to life. Work is kind of that necessary evil. Uh, the other view is the higher view. I can see work as a calling of God. That's, that's the road we've cut, so to speak, so far in our journey together. Now, today in this session, what I want to do is try to bring it down to a very personal and practical level. You're probably hoping I do that. But I want to get it to where you have some uh, handles for your, your life personally that you can use walking out of here today. And I want to start and bring us into focus by asking this question. Here's the question. Am I excited about what I do? Am I excited about my work? Several years ago, I had the opportunity of having lunch with George Gallup, the famous pollster. And we sat around the table talking about a variety of subjects. But part of that discussion turned to the world of work. And he told me of his concern for men in the workplace. He said, you know, Robert, millions, maybe even billions of dollars are being lost every year because most men in the work, workplace feel like square pegs being put into a round hole. They feel like a forced fit. And that has a way of really demotivating the effort that they give each day. Last week I shared with you that in a poll by the Gallup organization, they found that some 50% of workers today don't feel engaged in their work. Remember that? And by not engaged, it didn't mean that they didn't work hard. We all work hard. But by not engaged, what the poll found is that at least half of the workforce that will go to work today feels no personal connection to their work. There's no personal passion for what they do or personal commitment to the work that they will engage today. And you know, the least satisfied of all workers in America today are men between the ages of 30 and 49. You excited about your work? You motivated to go to work today? Did you wake up this morning with a little spark in your belly of want to? Or was it all have to? Just another day of work. A concession to life. You know, at some point in our work, we've probably all felt a gut-level connection to this old David Allen Coe song. You might even want to sing along with me as I go through it. Because you'll be driving along in your car, and this song will come on, and you'll just automatically join in. The chorus goes like this. You can take that job and shove it. I ain't working here no more. My woman done left and took all the reasons I've been working for. You better not try to stand in my way when I walk out that door. You want to join me? You can take that job and shove it. I ain't working here no more. It just feels good, doesn't it? <laughs> Some of you are probably saying, man, that feels real good. It's almost therapeutic. Hey, what makes work worth it? It's a good question, isn't it? What is it that brings our work alive that gives us some energy for it? 
Not just we go through the routine of it. It gives us some energy. This morning I have five practical answers to that question for you. Five key ingredients that I, I think can add life to your work. They're very practical. I call them the five work energizers. They're there on your outline. Let's start with the first one. It's called the right dream. The right dream. You know, without dreams, life would be pretty dull, wouldn't it, guys? Because dreams, if you think about it, dreams give to the soul what food gives to the body. And that's energy to run on. Every day when you have some dream that's pulling you forward, rather than you having to be pushed by circumstances, that dream is actually feeding your soul, feeding your effort, energizing your life. If I told you, for instance, today that every man who finished his 10 key moves on his work draft and turned them into men's fraternity, if you did that at the end of men's fraternity, you would be rewarded with a Harley Davidson? Would that get you motivated to complete that task? That dream of riding wild and free across the landscape of America? Sure it would. It'd give unbelievable energy to that one piece of work. Of course, if you believe you're going to get a Harley at the end of men's fraternity, you're not dreaming, you're hallucinating. <laughs> but you get the point, don't you? Dreams, dreams give energy to our activity. So what are your dreams when it comes to your work? And that's a very important question. What do you dream about being at work, achieving at work, having at work, contributing to work and to the broader community through your work? Is that clear to you? Is there a, is there a real crystal clear mental picture pulling you forward that's compelling to you when you get up each day, and are you making progress towards those ends, those dreams? Here's what you need to know. You pursue with passion only what you dream about. Business consultant Bob Beale estimates that less than 20% of men in the workplace have what he calls well-defined dreams that pull them forward in their work. Most men, in his opinion, as he consults with businessmen, usually executive businessmen across the country, he said most men, even in the professional ranks, go to work visionless. Their imaginations see only the immediate. They think no farther than today or this week or at best this quarter. The bigger vision of where my work should be taking me by the end or what I should be achieving through it or what I can contribute by it, or the legacy that I want to leave in it, those dreams are often missing in most men, which create in their day-to-day -day work an uninspired drift rather than an energetic drive. Wouldn't it be great if every guy could go to work today like Martin Luther King? I have a dream today. Could you feel the energy in that? When he stood before that throng, he, he did have a dream. It was about his work. Wouldn't it be great if every guy could go to work today saying, I have a dream today about my work. Now, by having a dream, I want you to know I'm not talking about some unrealistic fantasy. In fact, the Bible even warns about that over in Romans 12. It says that no man should think of himself more highly than he ought to think. When I mention dreams, I'm not talking about fantasies. I'm talking about something that's realistic. That's why I called it a right dream. And a right dream has three components to it. Here they are. First, it's something that you can do. Now, it may be difficult to do. It may be hard to do. It may even, in your mind be something that requires great faith to believe that you can get to. But nonetheless, it's something that you can do. It's something that you want to do. It's something that will make a positive difference. It serves people. It positively impacts. It changes lives. 
and blesses people. You see the definition on the screen of a right dream. It's something that I can do and want to do that accomplishes something worth doing. I have a dream like that. That's what we mean by a right dream. You know, when I was kind of wandering through life in my younger years, when I went to seminary and I began to pour through the pages of the New Testament, I found my dream. A dream that captured my life still does. As I read through the pages of the New Testament, I saw a church where people came alive and really engaged one another and engaged the community. I didn't know of a church like that. I'd never experienced a church like that. But in my heart, I dreamed of leading a church like that. I didn't know how that would come about. When I moved to Little Rock, I gathered with a small group of people in the beginning who wanted to be a part of something like that. A church that could outlive the world head to head. It can go with the world head to head and outlive it every time. One that could really change people's lives. One that could equip people to serve one another and love one another and, and give things away. One that connected people authentically to God. And you know, I've had that dream in my heart for over 30 years now. Uh, there have been days I've gotten up in the morning and I've wondered if that would ever be a reality. And sometimes the work has gotten so hard, I wasn't really excited about going to work. But underneath some of those everyday layers of circumstances always burned the dream of being a part of a life-giving, life-changing church. What are you dreaming about? What are you dreaming about today, guys, that gives energy to your work? Here's the point. The more our work integrates with our dreams... This is the first energizer. The more our work integrates with our dreams, whatever they are, the more energy we will have for what we do. That's energizer number one. Here's number two. It's called the right personal assessment. Over 2,000 years ago, the Greek philosopher Plutarch uttered three words that even today proved to be one of history's wisest personal directives. Here's what he said. Know thyself. Know thyself. And history has shown that few things are more helpful to a man than when he has a good personal assessment of himself. And you'd think that'd be easy. I mean, we live with ourselves every day, right, guys? you think we ought to know ourselves... But I want to call us now way back to session one. Remember the paradox principle? In every area of life, the paradox principle teaches us to ask this first question. Do you remember? Do I get it? Let's apply that to ourselves. When we look at ourselves, do I get it? What's the answer, guys? No. Not without help. Every one of us in this room, even though we look at ourselves in the mirror every day, we're always dogged by blind spots. Poor conclusions, poor estimations. The only way you're ever going to really know yourself is to reach out and ask for help. Because when it comes to knowing yourself, we're all just partial qualifiers. Here's what we do need to know. We need to know that we are unique people with unique gifts and strengths. The scripture tells us in Psalm 139 that we're fearfully and wonderfully made. We're, we're all one-of-a-kind people. Science proves that because science tells us that no two human fingerprints are alike. You are a unique, one-of-a-kind creation on planet Earth, never to be repeated again. And so how does that apply to work? Here's how. We are most energized at work when our unique strengths are most utilized. Put another way, it's how we've been wired by God from the womb to see life, to experience life, to feel life, and to contribute to life. How we've been wired are our gifts, our strengths. And when those strengths are wedded well to work, you know what happens? We start experiencing energy 
in the workplace. Of course, the question is, well, how do I wed those two together? How do I bring that about? Did you know that most companies still struggle with how to match people with their strengths? The Gallup organization polled 1.7 million employees in 101 countries. And they asked this question. Do you have the opportunity to put your strengths into play every day? That's what they asked these 1.7 million workers from all over the world. Only 20% said yes. And you know what was most bizarre of all? They found that when a person goes to work for a company, the longer they stay in that company and the higher up the ladder they climb in that company, that the worker says the less they utilize their strengths. That's amazing, isn't it? In their book, First Break All the Rules, Marcus Buckingham and Don Clifton argue that most companies are built on two flawed assumptions. They're these. That each person can be competent in almost anything given training. And secondly, that a person or worker's greatest room for improvement is in their area of weaknesses. They say that's just totally off the mark. As a result, companies have spent millions of dollars training people to do, th to do things that they don't like and to work at things that they will never be good at. Buckingham and Clifton argue just the opposite. They propose that instead companies focus first and foremost on employees' strengths. I'm quoting them. They say, an employee's greatest room for growth at work is in the area of his or her strength. Companies need to bear down there. I thought it was interesting that Warren Buffett, remember the old financial tycoon? He would agree with that. When he was speaking to a group of inquiring students at the University of Nebraska, he said to them this, the biggest difference between you and me is not money. It's that I get to get up every day and do what I do best. And then he looked at him and said, and that's the best advice I could give you as you leave and go to work. Do what you do best. So how do you know yourself? Here are two critical no's. Here's a way you can know yourself. First, by knowing who you are. That is, what your strengths are. And the more you're confirmed in this, and guys, if you're under 35, the sooner you can learn your strengths, especially when you're young, the more able you're going to be to maneuver through life and look for work opportunities that match up with those known strengths. It's one of your most strategic moves as a young man to know what your strengths are. So how do you do that? Well, let me give you three practical ways. Take-homes. First, past experiences. Past experiences. One of the helpful ways of kind of getting a feel for who you are is just look back over your life and then ask yourself this. Where have I felt the most alive? The most excited. Enjoyed life. Just take a sheet of paper and list the experiences. And then think back through those experiences and see if there's any common threads that join them all together. Sometimes you'll get a big aha out of that. When I look back over my life, even from the time that I was a little kid in the fourth grade, I was always doing a couple of things. I was always creating situations that I could lead people to so they could enjoy it. I remember every Christmas I'd get a football uniform, and the reason I did is because I wanted to outfit everybody in the neighborhood, and then I created a football field in my backyard so everybody could play and everybody could participate. I like leading people to things that they can enjoy. And I also like creating things that will help people and make their life more enjoyable. I've done that my whole life. Those are two of the threads that really connected and gave me an aha. You know what connects you? Here's the second thing. Wise, objective counselors. Underline and star the word objective. They need to be objective. They can talk to you hard, pro and con. What you're good at and not so good at. Which oftentimes rules out family members, by the way, because they're not going to be very objective. 
But here's what the Scripture says. Here's some wisdom from the Scripture. Proverbs eleven fourteen says, Where there is no guidance, the people fall. We could say where there's no guidance, the worker falls. In an abundance of counselors, there is victory. Proverbs 13, 20 says, He who walks with the wise will be wise. For you young men, there's a real strategic move there. Somebody who's objective and wise, who can speak into your life the hard things, both good and bad, about who you really are. Third, there's a third way. You can get help by a personality or an abilities test. We took a, a simple personality test in our last section of Men's Fraternity on Home to help us better engage with our wife and our kids or the girl that we're dating. Uh, that's a wonderful asset in the 21st century, this testing. And it's especially wonderful when it comes to the world of work because there are all kinds of a, assessment tests out there. And I've listed on your outline three web addresses in your notes of testing that I found helpful. One is the uh, Your Unique Design Test which is a wonderful tool for finding what your personality is and where the settings are that you're most motivated. And uh, that's a test, by the way, that in the third year of men's fraternity and the great adventure every guy in the room takes to help assess themselves for the adventure that they're going to have in life. And you can get on the web address and take that test even today if you'd want to. It's listed for you. The other is the Strength Finder test that is published by the Gallup Organization for helping a guy find his job strengths. The third is what is called AIMS, which is not, a, it's not just a test, it's a whole testing organization down in Dallas, Texas, that you can go to and meet with vocational counselors, take a battery of tests, and they help you begin to identify fields of employment that are a best fit for your gifting. I mentioned that one because when my kids graduate from high school, we would go down to Dallas and have them do, go through the Ames testing. You can take it at any time in your life, but we did it in order for them not to squander their college education. We wanted them to have some assessment of who they were and the strengths they had and what fields, vocational fields, their gifts best matched with so that they could accurately, or at least more accurately, choose a course of study in college. So those are some things that are very helpful to you. We need to know who we are. Know thyself objectively. So you can use counselors and testing to know who you are, but you know what? Using counselors and testing and other things is also helpful for another assessment that I think is as, is as important as knowing who you are. And that is... You also need to know who you're not. I say that because I'm old enough now to have watched a number of men spend a good portion of their lives in work chasing dead ends. Squandering a large portion of their life trying to be something they're not because no one would sit down with them and say, you know, Frank, you're just not that. I know you want to be a salesman, but you're just not a salesman. I know you want to manage your dad's store, but you're just not a manager. I know you want to be a lawyer because it seems to make a lot of money, but you're chasing a dead end because you're just not a lawyer. You just don't have the gifts for it, the strengths for it, the design for it, the talents for it the intelligence for it. And somebody just needs to sit you down and look you in the eye and say, Frank, you're not that. Because until you know who you're not, you're never going to discover also who you are. It's one of the key moves of life for each one of us. You know, Rick Campbell, our host over here, has always been a very capable and aggressive kind of individual. And because of that, all through his life, he's found himself in leadership positions, and he's enjoyed in some ways being in those leadership positions. He's pursued those leadership positions, as he says, a lot of times for the ego strokes, right, Rick? It just seemed like the natural thing to do when you're a capable person. For a number of years, he served at his prestigious law firm, Mitchell Williams, as the CEO of that law firm, the leader. But for some reason, if you talk to Rick, 
it was always an almost fit. And because of that, it didn't give him energy. It drained energy away from him every day when he would go to work. It even became irritating to him. But he thought, this is just what I'm supposed to do. And then four or five years ago, he took that Your Unique Design test and got with some other men as they were also assessing their life and spent some time just talking through it. And in the midst of that, he had a breakthrough. You know what his breakthrough was? He discovered what he was not. He had some guys look at him and say, Rick, you're not a leader. And that led him on a journey to the place where he could finally look himself in the eye and say, here's what I really am. I'm an encouraging helper. That's who I really am. One who loves to support people, not lead them. When I don't have time to really get into people's lives and support them, when I'm just driving them through leadership, I'm actually moving away from my gifting, not towards it. One who has time for people to really engage them. One who could assist them in their dreams, not me creating the dreams. I always seem to find myself there, but that's not what I really enjoy. And so when he finally came to admit who he wasn't and discovered who he was, you know what Rick did? He moved away from leadership at his law firm. Stepped down from being the CEO of the firm. Right, Rick? And became a lawyer in the firm positioned with clients to be an encouraging helper. And it gives him energy every day. Here's the point. The more our work engages our strengths, the more energy we will have for what we do. Know yourself. Here's a third work energizer. It's called the Ever Writer Job Fit. It's kind of a mouthful. Here's what I mean by that. For most men, a good job fit will unfold over time. It's a process. For you younger guys, there's always this expectation that you're going to finish college or finish high school and go out in the work world, and you're going to nail it with the first job. And us older guys kind of chuckle under our breath. I want to use this diagram to help you kind of get a feel for what I mean of the ever-rider job fit. This is kind of a process that most guys go through in life, and, and some of us get stuck in one of these stages and never get out of it. But I want to at least show you the whole picture, and then you can put yourself where you are. For instance, in the 20s, in the 20s, mostly when it comes to job fit, it's guesswork and discovery. I'm just trying to figure out who I am, and I'm using actual work experiences to reflect back to me what I do best and what I don't do best. The energy, though, that I get in this early time of the workforce, the energy I get is through surviving. <laughs> it's, I got a job. I mean, I mean, I remember when you first have a job, even if it's the wrong job, you're just excited that you're making a living. And, and that'll last for a while. You'll run on that energy for a while, but you, it won't sustain you. You start moving in your 30s and 40s, and then you realize you've got to make some courageous right adjustments because you're not after surviving anymore. You're after success. That's the energy you get. When you start succeeding at work, it's over succeeding at work. You want to find the right fit. Then in your 40s and 50s, you begin to negotiate into what I call a best fit. I mean, you're now, now success is not so important as significance. You want to be significant. You want to do something that really counts, especially if you're having some level of success. Now you're building on that. Now you want to do something that's significant. And then in your 50s, or maybe it's your 60s, or even later, sometimes along that line, it requires a bold move to what I call highest and best use. The energy is not even significance, it's sustainability. And by that I mean something I could do with my life, some work I could do even if I wasn't employed, some aspect maybe of my job that I would just give away for free. But what's going to really drive me to the end, what's going to give me energy to get up every day is this is me. This is the essence of me, and I want to do this the rest of my life. Because remember, guys, about retirement, 
If you retire and do nothing, all you're doing is writing your death certificate. Because men are action figures. They're meant to contribute. We're designed that way. And when a man stops contributing, he starts dying. Then you can take a look at that for just a moment. That's what I mean by the ever writer job fit. Somewhere along the line, some guys get stuck. They just keep circling around guesswork and discovery and they're 50 years old. Some guys get stuck with success, the money. They can't, they can't move to significance because they can't get the golden handcuffs off. They know they want to do something that's a better fit for them. They just can't give up the money. So they go to work getting the money, but being drained by work every day. And then some guys think that after I've had significance, there's nothing left. No, no. There's sustainability that's left. And you've got to find the core, the essence, the best use of who you are. Now I want you to be aware that in this journey to this ever writer job fit, there are going to be some anxiety-producing transitions along the way. Because to move to each of these levels require a bold, courageous move on your part to keep this work energy going. Most young men somewhere, by the way, in their 20s, most of you young guys here today, somewhere in your 20s, are going to have to make a courageous, bold move to get that better job fit. You're going to have to leave the family business, get out of dad's shadow, and go out on your own. It'll scare you to death. But unless you do that, you'll never be the man you're supposed to be. Some of you are going to have to admit that the job you're in right now just isn't you, and you've got to change. But what else can I do? Some of you are going to have to just start over and find what you really want. And it's going to be teeth-clenching scary for you to do so. But to not do so is to live in an almost fit. And guys who are in an almost fit, it drains energy out of their life every day. It doesn't give energy, it just drains energy out of their life every day. I want you to listen to an email that I got this week from a young guy who came to men's fraternity a few years ago, and here's what he wrote. He said, I just completed college when I came to Little Rock with my wife. I was starting an engineering consulting job, and we just began attending the church. That year in men's fraternity, we discussed living a purposeful life. Many of the lessons I learned that year in men's fraternity, I could not match up with myself. When I began exploring my design and my passions in life, nothing seemed to match. How could this be true? I had just spent five grueling years of my life in engineering school to now discover that God did not really wire me to be a data-driven, introverted employee. So what did I do? Nothing. I put that study on the shelf and let it go for three years. But as I did, I began to experience frustration and unfulfillment of not living according to my design. It began to infect my marriage and my friendships. After those three years, I'd had enough and I began to explore the possibility of making the necessary changes to align my job with my design and life purpose. I was at my first big crossroads in life. I sought counsel from a few trusted advisors and a few professional career counselors. And through this process, I not only identified a vocation consistent with my life purpose and design, but I saw God confirm this change directly through the Scriptures. I had never seen or heard God in such a direct manner before, and I knew I could not ignore it. And so, on October 18, 2004, nearly three years exactly from my first men's fraternity experience, I made the change from engineering to financial services. Never mind the educational background differences, the salary cut and the new baby to feed were big enough to make this change scary. But I did it. And even a few weeks into the change, I began to see the confirmation of it all. That's just one life journey, living to find that ever-writer job fit. You know, when I look at this, I laugh sometimes because I've personally been through every one of these stages. I remember graduating from the University of Arkansas in financial management and considering banking as a career, and it just didn't stir anything. And i just become a Christian. I was wandering around, and I just locked on to the fact that I like to help people, so I thought maybe counseling is the way to go. 
So I packed my bags and moved to Portland, Oregon and went to Lewis and Clark College in counseling psychology. But along the way, since I was a Christian, I thought, you know, I need some Bible in that. So I'd go to graduate school at night at Lewis and Clark, and during the day I'd go to Western Seminary to get Bible. And along the way, as I told you, I discovered in the pages of the New Testament my dream about this church. And so I threw my passion into being a pastor. And I went to Tucson, Arizona in my late 20s, and I began to pastor a church there, and great things happened. But then, about 30, I began to be real uncomfortable because I was working with some other guys underneath those guys, and I wanted to express this budding leadership in me, but I couldn't. I wanted to be creative, but I couldn't. And then the church here called, and they wanted to be innovative, and they wanted to be creative. So I made this courageous move from this church that had been growing that I'd been working my life to help build and we were about to move into this great facility, new facility in Tucson and I left it all to move into an unair conditioned gym with a few people here in Little Rock. But it was what I needed to do. It was that bold move. And then all through my 40s and 50s I've been allowed here to make those adjustments along the way to get that best fit. And I've been so appreciative of that. And then recently, as many of you know, I came to a place where the church leadership, leading this church for 25 years, it needed to be set aside. And so I turned it over to a younger man. And it was scary to give all that I've worked for and around and with for 25 years away. But I gave it up. And you know why? Because I've discovered my highest and best use is not just in leading a church. It's working with churches worldwide, developing tools and resources and books and curriculum, things that would help them in creative ways to enjoy life and be better. That's been my journey. And you know, at every stage, with those bold moves, there's been a re-injection of energy into my life. Here's the point. The writer and tighter our work fits with who we really are, the more energy we will have for what we do. Here's a fourth work energizer. I call it the right pace. The right pace. You know, surveys tell us that 40% of all workers today describe themselves as workaholics. You in that group? It's easy to get addicted to work in our country today. Americans live to work. The rest of the world kind of works to live. But I want you to know the old maxim, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Right? So notice this. A good pace at work will provide enough time for three things. Rest, and by the way, even God rested from work. And that's why one of his top ten commandments is that you take some time off to enjoy life. Regularly. Not just once a year, the two-week vacation in the summer. God built in a rhythm where you take time off every week. He said you need to do that. That's how I designed you. But a good work pace will include rest. It'll include family. It'll include spiritual pursuits. Now I want you to listen real closely. Good workers can often negotiate their pace, especially established good workers. What do I mean by that? You know, when you were first on a job, if you're young and you just started a job, you don't have any leverage at your work. You're leverage less at your work. But if you do a good job, over time, you will establish this in the eyes of the people you work with. The value that we can't afford to lose this guy. And that's your leverage. If you do a good job, if you have a good impact, you'll have that negotiating power. Years ago, I met with a doctor who was real concerned about the firm that he was in, the practice he was in. All the guys, concluding himself, he would label workaholics. They worked huge hours. Every guy was expected to do the same. The only problem was is it was leaving no time for his family. 
No time for some spiritual pursuits that were growing within him. And he was really frustrated by that, and he didn't know what to do. And so we sat down, and we had dinner together. And as we were talking, he was sharing this frustration. He felt like he was dying inside. He was working all the time. And I asked him this question. I said to him, I said, would those guys like to lose you? And he was really good at what he did. And he said to me, he said, no, I really don't think so. I think they, they really value what I contribute to the practice. And I said, that's your negotiating power. I said, whether you believe this or not, why don't you just sit down with them and say, guys, I know we all work and we all make the same amount of money. We're all measuring each other every day by how much we do and what we make and that kind of thing. Here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to make less. In fact, I'd like to cap it right here. But for that, I want to work less. And if you don't agree with that, I'm leaving. You know what they did? They backed up and said, we don't want to lose you. You mean you'd really do that? He said, yeah, I want this for this. And they agreed. I've seen a number of men do that. Negotiate, leverage their good work for a right pace. So let me say it again. In some form or another... Good established workers can have that kind of negotiating power. But here's the point. The more our work allows for a healthy pace and a balanced life, the more energy we will have for what we do. Now the last work energizer. A right focus. Brings us back a little bit to last week, and here it is. Our work matters to God. Guys, I just want to tell you, that your work, my work, it matters to God how we do it, the way we do it, the energy we give to it, the passion we have for it, the quality performance that we give. All that matters to God. We work for Him, whether you know it or not. Remember Colossians 3? Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord, rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. That's your boss today. But know this. He also seeks to work through us and work with us. Philippians 2.13 says this, For it is God who is at work in you to will and to work for His good pleasure. God's present job. Remember we learned about God last week that God is a worker. You know what God's present employment is? It's to work with you. That's his job. It's on his job description to work with you and to work through you and to help you have the best life possible. That's his job. <laughs> and so I'd say, let him do his job. And then lastly, I want you to know we will all one day have a comprehensive job review. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5.10 speaks of this exit interview this way. For we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body. That's including our work according to what we've done, whether it's been good or bad. So the question that should be woven in and around and through our work each day is this. What does God want? What does God want? That's such a good question. Remember the little bracelets, what would Jesus do? What would God want in your work? And how I work and the message that it sends to the people around us. And how I connect with employees and customers. In the values that I uphold in the workplace. The ethics. In the decisions that I make. In the reputation that right now today you will establish another little brick on. What's your reputation at work? All that matters to God. And He has certain desires for you and He wants to work that through you in your workplace. You know, not long ago, in fact, it's interesting, a guy gave me the article today in Parade Magazine was this picture on the front of the National coach, high school coach of the year. His name was Joe Ehrman. 
Joel is a former professional football player who now coaches high school athletes in Baltimore, Maryland. And football has always been a part of Joel's life. In fact, it was the center of his life until a few years ago, Jesus Christ changed his life and began to work in him. And he began to ask rightly the question about himself, what does God want from me? For my life and my work. And through a series of circumstances, he concluded it was helping boys, both from the area in which he lived and also in the inner city, to help boys become men. And that's where I got connected with Joe. Uh, because even though I've never known Joe personally, and we've never met, Joe has used a lot of the manhood concepts that I've developed some of those in the book, Raising a Modern Day Knight, to shape his own boys to men training. And recently, Pulitzer Prize winner Jeffrey Marks wrote Joe Ehrman's story in the book, Season of Life. And what I'd like to do is just read you one snapshot of Jeffrey Marks' encounter with Joe Ehrman on the job. Listen. Marks writes, I watched as all the players gathered around the field. Time to get busy, one of the boys shouted towards the Friday night sky. Joe Ehrman had already seen and heard it all too many times for any of this to affect him a whole lot. He had seen and heard it as an all-American defensive lineman. He had seen and heard it through the 13 years as a professional football player, most of them as a star with the Baltimore Colts. He had seen and heard it during his five years of, co- of coaching at Gilman High School. At the age of 52, Joe was no longer phased by the specific circumstances of any single game. No victory or defeat, no matter how glorious or excruciating for his team, would ever ellipse the real reason he was here. To teach boys how to be men of substance and impact. And that explained the absolute calmness with which Joe walked towards the huddle team for final comments just before the start of the 2001 season. Joe's brown eyes peered through his gold-rimmed glasses that conspired with his white hair, with his closely trimmed white beard and mustache as well, to make him look more like a college professor than a jock. He did not need a clipboard because he coached from the heart. He did not need a whistle because his players automatically fell silent when he stood before them. This is one of the greatest experiences of your young lives, Joe told the boys. So let's make sure you're having fun, all right? You've been doing a lot of work the last few weeks to get ready for this. Now's the time you can let it all hang out. Let's get after them tonight. We're going to get after them tonight, but let's make sure we're having fun. Then Joe initiated his standard question and answer sequence. What is our job as coaches, he shouted to the players. And in unison, the boys yelled back, to love us. What is your job, Joe shouted. The boys shouted back in unison, to love each other. The words were spoken with the familiarity of a mantra, the commitment of an oath, the enthusiasm of a pep rally. This was football? I soon discovered it was. It was big-time football. It was Joe Ehrman's brand of football. And he was doing what he loved to do the most. He was changing boys into men and coaching football, too. Your work matters to God. And here's the point. The more we personally integrate God and His eternal purposes into our work, the more energy we will have for what we do. So guys, how does all this apply to us today? Let me bring it down to a few specific action points on your outline. Here's what you can do to energize your work right now. First, stop saying, I'm trapped. No man is trapped except in his own mind. Remember, we started this journey. It's a journey to authentic manhood. Not a journey to authentic winehood. All right? I mean, 
I'm like you. I like sometimes just unload on a guy and, and whine. But you know, whine doesn't take you anywhere. Manhood takes you somewhere. And manhood is not about feelings. Manhood is an act of courage. So if you were listening to all the things I said today and it seemed a little overwhelming and you don't like your job and you're thinking, oh, where can I start? Where can I start? I'm trapped. No, you're not. You're only trapped in your mind. But if you want to become a man, you'll start moving. Today, you'll start moving. Notice letter B, name which of the five work energizers are missing in your work. You can go back over this and identify what's missing. Because what's missing, if you can identify it, just the recognition of what's missing is half the battle. It gets you started. It tells you what your targets are. And then decide what first move you can take to re-energize your work. Whatever that first move is, that's what you need to put on your 10 key move sheet. And then talk to some wise counselors about how to best make that move. And enlist friends, your buddies, to support you and pray for you and cheer for you. And then enlist God in prayer because He wants to work for you too. Do you know what you call all these courageous moves that I've just listed for you? Can I boil it down to one statement? It's called coming alive at work. And that's what real men do. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to this week's message. It really helps us when you rate and review this podcast. If you found today's teaching helpful, take time to do that today. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. Visit soundofarose.com for any of your podcasting needs.